Come, make us God, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your so on the, the good connections and your daughters and bring them Thanks. to me. So all the <laughs> rings I would do it, but my connection is bad. Brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And as end of you, I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Here ends the reading. Thanks be to God. I love that last line, and the Lord God changed God's mind. How cool is that? Like, if God can do it, maybe all of us can from time to time. That's not the sermon. (laughs) Nice try. (laughs) Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So here we are in the Sinai with the people who have come up out of the land of Egypt, out of enslavement. They have seen all sorts of things that they never, ever thought they would see Plagues upon the land in the form of frogs, in the form of locusts, in the form of blood. They saw the sea part before them, and all of it, in the name of a god they had half forgotten, led by a man 
whom they had really never known. And we know that the journey has not been an easy one to this point. We know that there has been a reasonable share of whining. Anyone who's ever traveled with small children in a car, I'm sorry to my small children, um, understands what Moses is probably going through, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, as they try to lead the people from Egypt to the promised land. And we get to this moment where God has called Moses to go up the mountain to receive the law, to receive the word of God. And that was coming up on a month ago for the Israelites. They're not that far out of Egypt at this point. They're still becoming accustomed to this new life. They're still getting used to freedom and not being continually in the service of the Pharaoh. Egypt and all that they have known for generations is still very, very present to them. And it turns out that they carry a lot of Egypt with them still, tangibly or not. Part of the whining that has been going on and is continuing to go on is that longing for familiarity, for rhythms and values that had been theirs, that had been imposed upon them for quite a long time, and that had been their life for generations. It's hard not to understand, right? We are creatures of habit, every last one of us. It's really hard to change. I am looking at all of you. I know a fair few of you fairly well at this point, and I am going to say that even the most easygoing of us have a hard time with change on a pretty regular basis. For the Israelites, who have been forced to work seven days a week, relentlessly, forced into a rhythm of endless productivity for the sake of the Pharaoh, of having their worth measured only in how much they can accomplish and how much work they can do so that the powerful remain powerful. Even good change, this change, is going to be hard. Because even dehumanizing patterns, such as the one that they had lived for generation upon generation, can settle themselves inside of us, can become our own internal voices, can eat away at us until we actually begin to believe in the lies that they tell us, until the voice inside us, that little one in the back of our head, whispers our own unworthiness if we are not continually being productive. And the fear of that unworthiness begins to erode our soul. A few weeks, a few months even, of hearing a different message. Is that enough? A few plagues, a couple of miracles, of seas parting and food appearing? That's only going to begin the work of quieting that soul-sucking, fear-driven whisper that clever voice that makes even the grace of God a questionable commodity. I mean, how worthy could we be out there in the wilderness? How long until God realizes we aren't working to earn grace and salvation? 
And then what? I think we all know the place of wondering whether we really are worthy. Whether the love that we've known might actually still be present if all of the deepest corners of our hearts were laid open and if we didn't have to work to prove our worth every single day of our lives. The Israelites out there in the wilderness are wondering, as I think we would, if the God who has been listening to them whine this entire time and onto whom they have dumped, projected all of their fears, they are wondering if that God is going to stay with them. Or if they're just going to stay in this wilderness place forever. They are wondering if God's apparent withdrawal up the mountain taking Moses along for the ride isn't just a sign of great divine abandonment. And as much as we tend to blame the Israelites and to pass judgment on them and to scoff at their lack of faith, oh, what foolish people they are after all. They just didn't know any better yet. Is it any wonder that the Israelites took these familiar signs of worth, the gold that had always marked those of status and power, to make a symbol that might make them feel better? To make a symbol of their own worth, their own power, a symbol that could not call into question their inherent value, a symbol that could not look beyond the facade that they kept up every single day, and a symbol that could not abandon them. The thing about making an idol is that it does not ask anything of us, does it? It just sits there looking pretty. Idols show us only that which we want to see. Idols reflect only what we put into them. Which makes it a little bit different than worshipping God, for instance. Worshipping God requires us to grow and to change. To live into the image of one who created us. Worshipping God calls us to be known all the way into the most hidden recesses of our psyche, the parts that even we don't want to look at all that closely. Idols are easier. Idols allow us to remain comfortably in our own selves, with our own facades, because idols keep things safely, superficial, and beautiful. The thing about making an idol is that it can, in fact, start off as a way to see and understand God, as a symbol of something which is beyond our ability to comprehend, a lens through which we can focus our prayers and our thoughts on what all of that might mean. But it ends up becoming an object of worship in and of itself, reducing the incomprehensible to something that we can touch and see and manage reducing God down to a human creation with human values like profit and power and security. Which is why we are not so unlike the Israelites, after all. It's why we create so many idols ourselves. Less tangible, less calf-like, maybe less bovine in general. But idols nonetheless. 
For as much as we tend to blame the Israelites in this story, for as much as we pass judgment upon their fearful demands of Aaron, this is our story as well. And we create and project our own fears and call them God. Like the Israelites, we place our faith in structures that continually make our worthiness conditional on external measures. We place our faith in tangible symbols which take the place of the intangible towards which we profess to strive. Like the Israelites, we struggle to believe that the freedom we find in God's grace and abiding love isn't actually going to be taken from us, isn't going to leave us alone in the wilderness. We struggle to believe that such intangibles are real are ours to claim. And so we create symbols. We create idols that we can hang on to. Flags or guns or political power, whiteness or wealth or law and order. All of which have ceased to be tangible representations of intangible ideas, but have instead become objects of worship in their own right, divorced from the very human systems that created them. Like the Israelites, the idols we make reflect more clearly our fears than they do our faith. For though we may have been worshiping our God for a lot longer than the Israelites had been by the time they were out there on the Sinai, we have no more distance than they did between a dehumanizing culture and the call of a God who values us exactly as we are rather than as potential creators of profit and power. We, too, still carry the symbols on our very bodies of a culture that continually demands more and suggests that our worthiness depends upon our output, leaving behind all of those whose lives cannot be made to benefit the powerful. We, too, still worship our idols, rather than the values that we would have them stand for, for we fear that self-examination would call us to account and would break down the facade that we have worked so hard for so long to maintain. We fear that it would make all that we love fall away from us. And so we contort ourselves to the demands of whiteness rather than challenging a culture in which black and brown lives are treated as criminal and expendable. We make sacrifices on the altar of guns rather than committing ourselves to the security of God's justice. We uphold the ideals of law and order, of a civility based on silent complicity, rather than engaging in prophetic protest that sometimes needs to flip tables in order to be heard. Indeed, rather than following in the ways of Jesus Christ, whose arrest and execution was perfectly legal and absolutely orderly. We may have been worshipping our God for a lot longer than the Israelites had when they were out there in the Sinai, but we too need the reminder that no matter the idol that we create, no matter how much we insist on turning from our God, no matter how much God grieves our idolatry and loses God's mind, perhaps, wanting to just shake us out of it, we will not be abandoned. We will remain 
beloved. We will still, no matter what, receive God's grace. Even when it's hard to trust. And I get it. It is hard to change. It is hard to change when you've been living into a rhythm of endless productivity, into a culture where certain lives matter more than others when we consider that normal, into a society that gaslights us into blaming the victims for the violence that they endure. Even dehumanizing systems, such as the one we live in, settle themselves within us, eat away at us until we believe them, until the voices inside us whisper our own unworthiness and fear erodes our soul and the resultant anger sounds like the voice of the God whom we have created. I get it. I get that we too need the reminder that while idols are safe and beautiful and comfortable and demand nothing of us, the courageous discomfort of self-examination that our God calls us to every single day will bring us deeper into a relationship, not with the idols we have created and who look like us, but with the God who created us in the image of the divine who already knows all of our deepest secrets, who already sees beyond the facade that we have created, and who loves us and who believes in us in spite of it all. Sometimes we need the reminder that the idols we have built and worshipped and loved for so long can yet be destroyed. Even the idols of whiteness nationalism and capitalism and patriarchy, all of them can be destroyed for the sake of building the kingdom of God. The possibility of following in the way of love, in the way of justice, in the way of freedom, in the way of peace, all of that is still within our very grasp. By the grace of the God who calls us to that work every single day. We need the reminder, even us, even now, that the God who caused mayhem in protest of inhuman treatment is the God who does not demand that we exhaust ourselves in order to become worthy. The God who is willing to make covenant even with such fickle creatures as we humans are on a regular basis. Our God will not abandon us, even in the wilderness, even before our idols, even when we are afraid. We too need the reminder that this story hands to us, that our God will outlast, will outlove any idol we could ever build, and will call us again and again and again and again, not to create gods who look like us, but to look more and more like the God who created and loves us all. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.